Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome listeners to episode nine of Offshoot with Bruce Stackenfeld. Bruce is an NYC-based lawyer running a boutique firm of 40 lawyers. From a difficult start in 1997 to now, Bruce has found his power niche, consummating joint venture equity deals, and become an effective leader to his pure play, real estate-only team of lawyers. Bruce is at least 20 years my senior and brings a ton of experience and wisdom to the conversation. We could have carried on for at least another hour. I literally got through half the material I hope to cover, but Bruce is super busy, and I'm thrilled he shared this time with me and you. Listen in for some of the nuggets that Bruce shares and how he brings them to life. For example... Drive your business with purpose and a vision. Let that become real for clients and employees, not just something on the wall of the conference room. Ranked by importance, focus on employees, then customers, then shareholders. Their growth mandate for finding talent, attract, retain, train. His leadership journey from brutal, potentially inappropriate honesty to leading with vision and conviction buying where there's less pressure and less appreciation for the nuance of a space like retail, how securing JV equity is like playing chess in the future in a space where relationship skills are critical, the business, personal, and legal issues all come together in a contract that won't be needed until things go sideways. Recourse is the hot potato, how it gets passed, how joint venture equity and banks look at it, and old retail versus new retail and the difference between them. Virtual offices will fail. There's no glue to keep the culture together and keep the man or woman inside the skill set happy and satisfied. Finally, we talk about artificial intelligence and where it might begin to have an impact in the commercial real estate space. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Bruce Stockenfeld. Bruce, also known as the real estate philosopher, is the founder, former managing director, and now chairman of Duval and Stockenfeld, a New York City-based real estate-only legal practice with about 50 lawyers serving all aspects of the real estate industry nationwide. <clears throat> it's from this station that he provides the email newsletter, The Real Estate Philosopher, which enjoys over 60,000 subscribers. Bruce is also an author with If You Want to Get Rich, Build a Power Niche to his credit, and a new book on the horizon, The Real Estate Philosopher's Guide, which I believe will be released this fall. Bruce has a unique industry vantage point. He works with some of the smallest real estate shops with little more than a gleam in their eyes to some of the largest real estate institutions in the world and everything in between. He also spends time in the hallways, if you will, of New York City, which seems to be Mecca for all things capital and capitalism. That arena provides an incredible playground for Bruce's mind, where his curiosity, free thinking, and powers of observation find plenty to devour. Bruce established his firm with Patrick Duvall and Terry Adler in 1997. He received a JD from Harvard Law School in 1983 
and a BS from Tufts University in Massachusetts in 1979. Bruce is a student of business and real estate. He is married, and he's completed at least one Ironman, the World Championship in Kona, in 2007. Bruce is the first guest I've had with whom I don't have any pre-existing relationship. So, Bruce, I'll try to stay on my best behavior, and welcome to the show. Uh, well, Kevin, thanks for having me. That, that was uh, a really nice introduction. And, and the thing I brag about the most in the world is there was two Ironmans, but full disclosure, I didn't do very well. So I'm not much of an athlete, but thank you so much for having me on your, uh, your, your show. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for taking the time. And I think if you complete an Ironman, uh, that's enough. I, most people on the planet can't really make themselves take that kind of pursuit seriously. But look, I'm very excited to speak with you. I've been able to read some of your material. I've been following the newsletter for, I think, 18 months or so. I know you've got a deep expertise in real estate, finance, law, and even marketing, which I think is a really unique thing for a lawyer. Um, So I'm I'm really looking forward to see where that conversation goes. Bruce, to start with, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and Duvall and Stockenfeld? Sure. Um, I've been a real estate lawyer in New York City since 1983 which is a long time to do uh, anything. Uh, the, the law firm that, that I'm the chairman of now is called Duval and Stackenfeld, almost 25 years old. Um, the thing that's interesting about it is we do one thing. We are a real estate law firm. We're about 50 lawyers. We call ourselves the pure play in real estate law to make it clear to ourselves and our clients, this is, is what uh, we do. We're only about 50 lawyers, but one of the largest uh, real estate law practices uh, in New York City. Our clients do just about everything from ground up development. They buy and sell all different kinds of properties. Uh, we represent them in lending and borrowing. Uh, we're probably most known for our joint venture slash corporate real estate practice, which is everything from jo- simple joint ventures to complicated platforms to opportunity zone funds and, and pretty much uh, anything uh, else. Um, the thing that, that is, is best about our firm and that makes our clients the happiest is, is, is really this. When we focus on one thing, uh, the real estate industry, uh, it, it's a very powerful uh, help to our clients. Um, when you think of the law, being a lawyer, uh, it's what's called a personal service business. And what that means is every client has, has different needs uh, for its lawyer. Um, however, there's been one thing that we've seen over the years that all of our clients want, every single one. And the irony is so it's so rare really that the lawyers deliver it. But every single client we have, no exceptions, wants a lawyer or a law firm that really understands their business. Uh, at the end of the day, clients aren't out there to create legal work. They're out there to get something done in the business world. Uh, a law firm that understands the business is very valuable. That's the reason why we decided we're going to focus on one thing, which is real estate. And we're, uh, we're all over the industry as well as the legal, and we provide a lot of value to the clients uh, that way. Um, last thing I'll say is, we, as far as I can tell, we are the only pure play real estate law practice left in New York City. Every other pure play real estate law firm has, has long ago since been uh, died out, been acquired by a big firm or, or disintegrated one way or another. Uh, we're the only one left. And, you know, being a math guy, if you're the only one, there's only two ways you could be. You're either the smartest or the dumbest. Uh, and I you know, certainly hope that it, it, it's the former, but that's that's where we are today. Anyway, that's a quick summary of, of the law firm. And how is it that you personally came into real estate law? What, what got you started down this path? Well, when you get right down to it, virtually nobody grows up 
you know, when, when they're asked in high school, what do you pl- want to be when you grow up? And they say, you know, astronaut or, or, I don't know, beachcomber, but they don't say real estate lawyer. Um, I still remember the moment when I got into real estate law, you know, because it was just burned into my memory, even though it was just a, a happenstance at the time. I started my career at a law firm called Shea and Gould, uh, which was a litigation powerhouse. It died off I don't know, almost 30 years ago now. Um, but I started as a litigator and I did not like litigation because litigation is kind of fighting over the spoils and it, I don't know, it just didn't thrill me. So I kind of, I guess to be really honest, I hated it. Uh, and so I went to the managing partner and said, hey, could I join the corporate department? And the managing partner, I still remember talking to him and he said, well, you know, Bruce, we don't really need anyone in the corporate department right now, but why don't you join the real estate department? And I still remember him saying that and me saying exactly these words. I said, I don't really know what those guys do. And I didn't know what they did, but I joined the real estate department and, and literally fell in love with it immediately. And it was, it's been, I'm not saying every day has been a day in paradise for my whole career, but I have loved being a real estate lawyer now for, God, it's getting close to 40 years. And that's a long time to do anything. Yeah. And then it looks like in 97, you and, and Patrick and Terry decided to branch out on your own. What, what led to that? What had you kind of decide to put up your own shingle and, and go your own way? You know, I, I, I would love to say, you know, it was, uh, you know, what, what, you know, your, your readers probably think is I always wanted to do whatever it was. And this was my big chance to conquer the world. It really was more just running away. Uh, you know, when I was at the firm before that, it was a, a major law firm called Mayor Brown and Platt. Now I think it's just called Mayor Brown. Uh, you know, a very good firm, but my, I just couldn't make partner there. They didn't need a real estate lawyer and I was going nowhere. So I fled, uh, you know, before I got fired, eventually, I fled Mayor Brown and formed a predecessor firm called Shapiro, Shapsis, Block and Stackenfeld. Uh, I had three good partners, but we really just didn't have the same, you know, kind of business uh, goals. And my practice by then had just exploded. Uh, the joint venture area, which is still my bread and butter, you know, 20, I don't even know how many years ago, uh, even even today, that's that's the focus of, of what we do. Um, it was exploding. Uh, we were working around the clock and we needed to hire people. And I called my friend, uh, you know, Pat Duvall. And, and I said, you know, Pat, thinking of starting a law firm, you want to do it with me? You know, and you think, and, you know, Pat were a little more reflective. He would have said, can I think about it? Or, you know, <laughs> my wife or, yeah, I don't know. But Pat just said, strangely, he said, okay. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. We started the firm in 97. Terry uh, at the time was a, was a junior associate. Uh, and today it's hard to think of Terry in that capacity because Terry's now the managing part of the firm, runs everything. And my joke, which is actually true, is, you know, she used to work for me. Now I work for her. She's the boss. And I have, uh, you, know, ch- you know, changed my role uh, to become uh, chairman. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the chain of events that led to Duval and Stackenfeld. So it was kind of just like, you know, kind of wandering around. And then, and then we started uh, the firm. And even at the beginning, we were just kind of frantically running around, desperately trying to not screw things up because we had too much business and, and we didn't have enough people. Uh, and um, it, over time, we started to get our act together more. Um, actually, a funny story. I don't want to bore your readers or your listeners, but... I do remember the first uh, firm meeting. By the way, am I allowed to swear on this thing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I um, okay, uh, right. I have I have two small children. I'm finding it very difficult to curtail that part of my vocabulary. But here is one place where you don't need to worry about it. Oh, all right, it's it's not that bad. But I remember <laughs> that you know I started the firm, and I'm you know basically running. I'm the managing partner. You know, we've been in business for about two months, and we're running like we're working twenty hours a day. If you ever saw the movie The Firm. That yeah. guy was not working nearly as hard as we were. I'm not exaggerating. Every minute I would go to a hotel for an hour's sleep and come back. So somebody says, you know, Bruce, we really should have a firm meeting. And I'm like, oh, why? He's like, we just should. I was like, oh, okay. So we got in a room. There were about, I don't know, nine of us, 10 of us. And they sit, we all sit down at the table. Everyone looks at me. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I, I, and I realized like, I'm in charge here. We're having a meeting. And then all I could think of was, well, you should always be honest. Okay. And, and so I said, I can still remember my words. We're completely, totally fucked is what I said. <laughs> and I don't see it getting any better. I think we're just going to get fucked worse. So that's how I started out as a leader. <laughs> Maybe not the best leadership skills. And I think I panicked everybody and, you know, hopefully I got better over time. Uh, but, you know, the thing that, that actually, you know, is, is useful advice, I think, is, you know, we, we, did, we did something that was dramatically different from other law firms in, in this. We realized a long time ago that, you know, clients come and go, whether you like it or not. You know, a client can go out of business or, or their business needs can change. They may not need you anymore. Um, you can't do anything about that except obviously, you know, try to do a great job and get more clients. But the one thing that you can't afford to lose are your lawyers, because if you lose your lawyers, you have nothing left. So we came up with a with a mission for the firm to call ATR, Attract, Train, Retain Talent. And, and we, we, we realized that it was actually more important to nurture our lawyers, our key people, than it was the clients. And it wasn't that we didn't care about the clients. We, we loved the clients to death. But we, we kind of followed Starbucks, uh, you know, mission statement, which was employees first, customers second shareholders third. And we realized, we kind of stumbled into that. But once we realized that, it really became the, the heart of the firm. And it was really the reason we've been, I don't want to jinx it, phenomenally successful. Um, you know, we have super lawyers, which are the backbone of the firm, and are the reason that the, the clients like the firm. And it's really simple business uh, advice. Uh, you know, if you treat your employees, your partners, your team super well, they'll treat your customers even better. And that's really been I, if there's any single thing that has really been the heart of our success, I would say that's it. And early on, I can imagine um, that notion having some resonance internally, but maybe being difficult to sell and to get the lawyers to, to you know, hey, I've got a, a potential new hire. I think he's a real talent. He fits the company culture. Like to bring him in. How do you get them? to drink the Kool-Aid on that front end, right? The, the hiring process to me is always two-way sales. They're selling you and at the same time, you're trying to sell the vision and the company on the early days of that. Now you've got you know decades of experience and 40 or 50 people who can vouch for, I suspect, doing what you say. How are you successful in getting people to, to buy in? Or were you? Oh, how were we? Oh, uh, it's a good question. It's a great question. I'm trying to think back in the old days. I mean, at the beginning, you know, we really didn't have ATR. We didn't have our firm values and culture. We were just a bunch of, I don't want to think we're idiots, but, you know, a bunch of desperate people, you know, you know, trying to do a great 
uh, job for our clients. We had too much work. We we're just kind of running around frantically. Uh, in hindsight, I don't know why anyone would have been foolish enough to have joined us, to be really honest. It's like, why would you come to this place? The guy in charge looks like he hasn't slept in a month. He hasn't bathed, <laughs> smells like he hasn't bathed. You have to be insane to come here. And I think probably what, what attracted people, because it's a great question. I haven't really thought about it. I, I think, you know, I don't know how I sound, but but I'm a very genuine person and a lot of passion and love in, in me. And I think people, uh, you know, felt like there was something good about what I was doing. And then they also looked around and they saw people like Terry and others. And they say, wow, these are some really good people here. And, and you know what? Maybe things are a little crazy, but this just might be my kind of crazy. And so we, we ended up getting, you know, enough people to join. And then over time, we put in place values and our hedgehog, which I can talk about. And then it sort of took off from there. And once, once we realized we're onto something, uh, you know, it, it all really became about the people. And, and as managing partner, I, I guess I, I had a good load star. I remember that well, actually one of my partners said to me something like, Bruce, you know, all the assets of this company go down the elevator every night. Your job's to bring them back. And I realized that that was my job more than anything else was to make it so that the talent at the firm didn't leave. And if I pull that off, everything would be fine. And I've really focused on that during my years uh, as managing partner. Uh, you know, obviously my role has changed as chairman, but um, but that that's been the heart of 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 what I, I did. And as far as way back when, I mean, really honest, I don't know why anyone was nutty enough to join us, but I'm glad it happened. I, your story is bringing back something. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, in these kind of entrepreneurial circles and and kind of working to hone the craft. There's a gentleman out of Canada called Cameron Harold, who is the chief operating officer, kind of COO coach. Uh, and he has a video of a guy in a big park uh, live music concert setting who's kind of like out back in the left by himself and just getting down, dancing like crazy. And at first everybody's kind of laughing at him and there's a few people and then like one person joins in and then two people join in. And fast forward five minutes later, the entire place is going nuts yeah. because one guy started dancing. So it sounds exactly what happened. You know, Bruce is out there, has a vision, has a belief and and got the boogie going and you've you got people to join in. Fantastic. <laughs> I like that analogy. I'm not sure, it, it, I, you know, the way I dance is pretty pathetic, but maybe you're right. <laughs> well, it fits perfect with the video. I'll send it to you when we're done. It's hilarious. Um, so what's happening in the business now? What are you what are you guys seeing? What challenges are you facing? And and perhaps appropriately also separate and distinct, what challenges are your clients facing? Well, okay. Uh it, it's I guess it's the same thing all at the same time. So COVID uh, you know, hit whatever it was 18 months ago. You know, business was booming for us and for our clients. Everything was kind of moving along, and then COVID just, you know, beat the heck out of everybody. Uh, most of our clients just stopped doing business. Um, you know, they, they were, they, when you think about it, there just wasn't much to, to do other than if you were an owner, try to talk your lender into not foreclosing. You know, if you were a tenant, try not to pay rent. If you were this, that, you know, everybody just sort of tried to kind of get through it. And I think what probably people realize that, look, it's temporary. You know, I think we all hoped it was six months temporary and it's now, you know, creeping on to close to two years temporary. But everybody realizes we're going to get through it and it's just a question of time. So for the law firm's perspective, I mean, we make our money when people, when our clients do something and we get hurt when they don't because there's nothing to do. 
So, uh, you know, we, 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 we struggled the last uh, 18 months because business had slowed down. Uh, what we should have done is just all, you know, kind of just, you know, laid back, you know, got, you know, into great shape and had a you know, good time going running or something. But instead, you know, we, we worked really hard to try to uh, change the outcome as best we could. Um, so starting, uh, I guess it's almost about exactly 90 days ago, it seemed like somebody rang the bell. And it's just about every one of our clients started to get busy and, and started to do things. Whatever they did before, they're starting to do again, whether it's leasing up their buildings, whether it's buying things, whether it's lending, whether it's uh, developing, whatever. Everything just came on with, it, with an explosion. Uh, and uh, like probably every other law firm in the city, uh, we moved from not enough business to too much business uh, in, in literally 90 days. Uh, the biggest problem that we have today is is trying to find uh, superstar people to join the firm. And if any listeners know really fantastic lawyers that, that want to be part of the pure play in real estate, you know, call me, call me, call me. Uh, and, and that's our biggest challenge. Now, as far as our clients go, um, and I've been saying this all through, uh, through COVID in my real estate philosopher articles, COVID is a red herring. Now, it's a big, big, big red herring, of course. But it doesn't really change the nature of the business that people are in. One way or another, you know, you have to have uh, a business that is going to create some sort of value uh, and upside or you're kind of useless. All right. And there's different ways to create upside. You know, developers have visions, uh, you know, you know, mega players like Brookfield and Blackstone have, you know, economic heft. Uh, different parties around the capital stack have different ways of creating value. Uh, and if you were able to create value uh, 18 months ago, you should be able to do that going forward. And if you weren't, what might have happened in a weird sort of way, you might have got lucky that you got kicked out of the system and you're not in business anymore. And you now have to do something where you are creating uh, value. Now, the things I see our clients doing now, the, the areas that are kind of hot, industrial is, is just off the charts. Uh, obviously, there's been a sea change in, you know, retail and how goods and services are provided and distributed. And, you know, retail has, hasn't died out. It's morphed. Uh, I don't know. I guess I would say vaguely it's some sort of combination of distribution or fulfillment and retail is all morphing into one uh, thing. But, it, but a, lot, a lot of our clients are, are either developing, buying, or investing in or lending on industrial. It's, I suspect it's the hottest asset class right this second. Uh, probably tied with it is one that wasn't even an asset class really five years ago. People were doing it, but it really didn't become like a, you know, I don't know, a basic food group is what's uh, sometimes called SFHR or single family home for rent. There has been an absolute feeding frenzy uh, on this among, I don't know, I can't say all of our clients, but a, a incredibly large number of, of our clients. And at heart, it's a simple business, right? You buy a home and you rent it. Now, obviously, that doesn't really work economically, but if you buy 100 homes, 500 homes, 1,000 homes, 10,000 homes or something, economies of scale uh, you know, take, take hold. And the risk reward is probably really, really good because you own the house. There's a you know, reasonable amount of debt. And you're renting it out, and there's enormous demand, uh, you know, for this. Um, so we've seen an enormous amount of of client uh, activity in that area. Clients also still love good good old multifamily. They've been buying that a, a lot. Now the areas that have been whacked, and the the more, I don't know if they are either aggressive, intrepid, creative, whatever souls, are, are three areas uh, that that 
got hammered over the last uh, 18 months and are now, you know, making various degrees of comeback. One of them is hotels. Uh, there was a, a, a lot of clients looked to buy hotels. Supr- not Maybe not, un- maybe, I guess I wasn't totally surprised, but not that many transactions happened at first. They're starting to happen now. Uh, and the reason probably things didn't happen at first is it was too easy to price it. You know, the hotel was throwing off, you know, $10 million a year, multiplied by 10, the hotel should be worth $100 million pre-COVID. Now there's no ten, uh, you know, hotel guests it's throwing off zero. It's actually losing $5 million a year. But you do the math, you wait three years, it'll be worth $10 million a year again. How much do you discount? You know, anybody can do the math. And, um, you know, people were looking for incredible bargains and the sellers were desperately trying not to do it. So not that much happened in hotels. But hotels now are becoming an area where there's an enormous amount of interest in our clients in buying it. Other areas, retail, uh, you know, is that what's that famous quote, you know, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, that's what I would apply to retail. Uh, rumors of its death are greatly exaggerated. People still want to go to stores. And I think really what's happened, and I've written extensively on this in my real estate philosopher, is that um, stores that really had no reason to exist, sorry to pick on, say, J.C. Penney, but stores that really didn't have any real you know, reason why they were there anymore, those have died out. But stores where there is a reason, they're, they're doing real well. The most obvious, like the Apple store. You have to make an appointment now to go to the Apple store. Technically, that's retail. Um, the last area I'll, I'll mention is development. Uh, it was a four-letter word. I know it's longer letters than four, but it's pushed in. It was a four-letter word uh, over the last year and a half, but uh, it's it's starting to come back as people are starting to realize, like the locations are are not going to die out. People aren't going to like disappear, you know, into into the countryside and never be seen again. So development is 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 starting to to rebound, and there's a lot of interest in it because it's one of the few areas where if you're good at it, you can outperform. Uh, because it's not so easy to price. Anyway, that's like a big picture, uh, you know, uh, area of what what clients are doing. But there's a zillion tendrils that come off of that. Yeah, I, and we'll pick into a couple of these, just um, see where they go. Back in the Great Recession, uh, Colony America and Waypoint Homes and a few others out there that I can't recall the the sort of branded names, um, but Blackstone. Uh, was one of the big buyers uh, and and same with colony um, and and that was you know back then it was REO to rental now it's you know build to rent but this, the idea was buying and aggregating single family homes for rental back then the play was very much you know distressed assets take it off their balance sheet put it on ours don't even really worry about cash flow um, meaning you know it's going to appreciate back t- to something close to historical norms. And when you're getting it at a 60% discount, it's not terribly important as to whether or not it's providing a four or five or six cap um, kind of yield on cost. But I didn't think from that time period that build to rent or SFR rentals was an asset class that had any staying power. I thought it was a moment in time and that as asset prices appreciated and, and the economies of scale of multifamily came back to normal uh that that build to rent and sfr rental would would die away i've obviously been proven wrong that's all by way of background and and wonder if you guys had exposure to that space back in you know 09 
2010 when that business was scaling and and what your thoughts on it were you know back then as opposed to now uh, I don't think I'd even heard of this as, a, as an asset class until probably, I don't know, four or five years ago. So I think the answer is I had no thoughts whatsoever on it because I hadn't heard of it. Uh, so sorry, if that's not the answer you're looking no, for. No, 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 that's fine. Um, and then, you know, um, you've done a fair bit of writing on being counter cyclical and, and you just touched on retail, which I think is probably as good a um, asset to pick on and a time period to pick on as, as any. Um, there's a lot of, you know, just run from retail sentiment in the marketplace. And it seems to be that there are fewer discerning buyers who can appreciate kind of the distinctions you're making. It's a little bit of baby with the bathwater, right? Just, just no retail. We're not interested. We're not doing retail. And, you know, I'm in the capital markets all the time and, you know, the, the sort of synopsis you just gave of like, okay, industrial, B2R, multifamily, and where appropriate, maybe hotel and some development, but no retail is the kind of thing that I'll hear regularly or no office. And I know you've written about office as well. What are your thoughts about, you know, right now and the opportunity to be counter cyclical? Because I think you, you really do have to have some conviction and, and some, insights to to lean into retail i mean sure if we can go buy an apple store and sell it at a three cap well yeah we'll do that but there's a lot of other stuff on the periphery that i don't think is being appreciated at the moment so i have written a whole bunch of articles on retail and i've had the same theme now i, I think it's even pre-covid that you know that the word retail is um it's it's kind of got two parts to it and it almost should have like you know two names like old retail and new retail or something um, and, you know, I was mentioning before, you know, stores that have no particular purpose uh, anymore. I mean, if, if retail means that you buy or you lease a location, you have a shelf, somebody puts something, you get, you buy something to stick on the shelf for a dollar, and then you try to get someone to walk in and pay you $3 for it. If that's all you're doing, I, I think that's probably a dead business. And, you know, sooner or later, it's a dead business if that's all there is to it. Uh, I'll call that old retail. Then there's new retail. And new retail is just something that's different. It could be like a store like, I don't know if you've ever been to Untuck It. I mean, it's a little bit of of silliness. It's just shirts that they claim are better untucked. They look like shirts to me. The store is packed. So people just sort of like the idea and it's doing really, really well. Go figure that. But New retail, which is something that, you know, draws customers in, has some reason that's interesting about it or a product or it's, it's maybe exclusive like the Apple store or whatnot. These stores can do extremely well. So the reason I think if I were going into the real estate business, I would go into retail is this. Just like you were saying a minute ago, a, a lot of parties say, well, we do office, we do this, we do that, but we don't do retail. A lot of parties don't do retail. And if you think what that means it means that they're shunning, turning up their nose at good, uh, new retail because they're afraid of old retail. And I would say that a discerning uh, party that wants to do the old adage, buy low, sell high, should, could be analyzing retail out, you know, locations, whether they're, you know, basically any kind of retail location and looking at the, at the, at the type of tenants that are there and, possibly concluding like new retail is fantastic. It, it's one of the best things you could own. Uh, and old retail is something that either has to be repurposed or, you know, or just closed up. 
But since so many players are saying, I don't want anything to do with any retail, I think it gives a, a good risk reward to the parties that are open to it. And I've seen, uh, you know, clients of mine, will not mention names, that I think are the, you know, the real smart thinkers, the ones that are not like afraid to challenge assumptions. They're, they're going into retail. They're buying things. They're looking for things. They're all over it. So I, I happen to think retail is, is possibly one of the best places for somebody that's really, you know, a thinker uh, and an analyzer of data points uh, to be looking at. And, and you've also written a bit about New York City. And I know early in, in COVID, you were calling for kind of the power V. And, and I think it's okay to kind of lump this in somewhat loosely with office. Uh, and, and I think your sentiment was office is not dead. Um, but how do you see both of those asset classes? Because office is also one where pencils down, a lot of people are just you know, we don't we don't know what urban office is going to do. We we don't know that we need to be involved in that asset class until there's more clarity. We we might see that work from home is going to have a meaningful, lasting impact on you know structural occupancy rates, et cetera, et cetera. What's your guys' view into that space? So I've stuck my neck out way way out. Okay, like way 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 out. Uh, I've written numerous articles saying that, you know, office is, is not dead. It's just uh, impaired. My book, which is coming out, as you said, next month, my real estate philosopher book. Um, you know, I make a bunch of predictions for the future in the book. I also go back on the articles I've read, uh, written before and, and give some, you know, analysis of how they could be used today. But one thing I've been saying uh, all along is, is, the, is the, the office is, is not even remotely dead. Uh, yeah, sure. People want to work from home. Oh my God. Is that like a new idea? I mean, people have been saying that for like, ever since there was an office, I'm sure people wanted to work from home and employers said, no, you can't work from home. You have a job and it's over here. <laughs> so, I mean, this is not like some sort of, you know, strange thing. Now, right now, of course, because of COVID, you know, it's the, everything's topsy turvy. Sooner or later, COVID will end. I mean, it may end that we're we can't do anything about it and we got to just live with it and people die and that's awful. But what are we going to do? Stay home forever? We can't. So COVID will end at some point, hopefully in a good way with, you know, people being vaccinated and, and, and it becoming more like the flu, which we tolerate uh, and have tolerated forever. Um, if you believe that, then it's really a question of push-pull. Employers all want their employees back in the office. I can tell you, our law firm, I mean, the whole point of attract, train, retain talent. Try retaining talent is sitting in a, in a you know, at home 200 miles away from the office. There's, there's no culture. There's no point. There's nothing. There's no reason for any business to exist if it's just a bunch of people flung all over the place. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. it. doesn't mean I'm smarter than everybody else, but I just don't see any other outcome than that people will go back uh, to the offices. The, the change that, that I do think is, hap is something that started before COVID and will keep on going is that, yeah, work from home is something that will gradually grow over time. You know, it used to be maybe, you know, you couldn't work from home unless your baby was sick or something. And then, you know, a lot of people maybe work from home on a Friday. And so maybe it'll end up that there's, you know, some businesses no work from home, some businesses one day a week, others two days a week. But I don't really see very many businesses that are going to thrive that don't have a place where people come together and do things. And that's that's the office. So 
The, the worst place for it right now is probably New York City, maybe San Francisco. I don't know it as well. But places where there's real problems like public transportation, uh, maybe a little more emotional panic in, in some locations than others. Uh, you know, and those places are taking longer than at least I personally predicted to get back uh, in the game. But sooner or later, and I think it's pretty soon, uh, everyone's going to be back. And once everyone is back, if you're not back, you're out of the game. You're sitting by yourself somewhere and everybody else is thinking, how can we get along without you? You're not here. We don't really care about you anymore. You're gone, you know? So um, that's my prediction, uh, you know, for, for what's going to happen. Uh, as I said, I stuck my neck out on it and I'm pretty sure I'm right. Yeah. And Willie Walker and Peter Lineman on, on Willie's, uh, he does those, he does like a webs. What does he call them? Wednesday webinars, I think. Um, and Peter, the sort of well-renowned economist, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but they sort of say, hey, office isn't dead because we have spouses and we have children. And, you know, I think there's a really valid point to be made that getting, even with the distractions and things that come with the office and the troubles of getting to and from the office and all of that, getting out of the house, getting away from your spouse, getting away from your children, getting into a place where theoretically you can find the headspace to focus and be really productive. Uh, I I think it all underscores what you're saying, but I I do want to go the other direction because I I have friends, you know, 80 to 100 person accounting consultancy. They made the decision 100% last year, work from anywhere. They sold the office everybody's virtual. They are literally scattered around the country now. People move to Hawaii, to Florida, to Wyoming. Uh, their business is thriving. And it's not entirely different than yours in terms of being a professional services firm. It's probably less esoteric in that accounting has more, it's either right or it's wrong and, and less probably interpretation and creativity than law. But what do you think of those firms? Are they are they a grand experiment destined to fail, or do you think there's maybe space for both? I'll bet you ten dollars that that specific firm, don't give its name out, will be non-existent in five years. That's great. That's That's uh, you know, I, look, I may be wrong, of course. You know, there's always like a zillion exceptions that proves the rules, and and you know, there's a zillion different ways for a business to thrive. But an accounting firm is similar to a law firm. You know, it's got customers, it's got clients, it's got to get business, it's got to have something that it's providing. Um, you know, maybe they're lucky they got one mega client that will keep them going. But sooner or later, you know, that client will disappear, you know, because clients do come and go. Uh, you know, how, how are these accountants going to trust each other? How are they going to go out drinking one night and, and find that one of them sick and needs help from the other one and the other one gives the help and they're brothers for life or sisters for life. How are all these things going to happen? The answer is they're not. One guy's in Wyoming, one guy's in Missouri, one guy's in New York. Uh, you know, they're, they're a marriage of pure convenience. Uh, if any one of them is doing really well in his or her location in Wyoming, every you know, the, all of his friends at other accounting firms in Wyoming are saying, hey, man, why don't you come over here? What are you, who the hell are these guys? And you're, you know, everyone else is your drinking buddy in, in, um, in Wyoming. Why are you staying with a bunch of people you hardly know? And then how are you getting more people? And who would want to join an organization like this? I mean, the only way this thing stays together is if the economics of each person are better than they could be everywhere else. And mathematically, that is not going to happen most likely. 
So I'd say the odds of that business surviving are low. So that's what I think. Now, I'm wrong a lot. I have to admit that, but I I don't see how that business survives. That's interesting. We'll have to fast forward and we'll talk in five years and see. I, mean, it, it, the, I won't mention the firm. It's a good friend of mine. Uh, it'll, I'm very curious about his and others who have made the same sort of executional choices. There, there, was, a, there was a law firm, I'm spacing the name, and it did exactly this business model and it was growing like crazy. Everybody, it was like the greatest thing in the world because the lawyers worked at home. There were no office, no overhead. And and they could provide cheaper services to the clients. The clients really liked it, and it was just killing it. And then all of a sudden, it just blew up and disappeared in like two days. Uh, I forget the name. You can look it up. It was just, I guess, pre-COVID. It's not a COVID ex- uh, destruction. Um, so uh, that doesn't prove anything, of course. But I, I, I think a, a, a business like an Apple or a Google, where they own the thing that is being sold, you know, the widget, that has a much better chance of survival with people spread all over than an accounting firm or a law firm or professional services organization where you don't really own anything except, you know, the, the relationships that you have with your partners and with your clients. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. my two cents on it. It's super interesting. Not that you own the people, right? Meaning your talent, but if you do own anything, that would be it. And so anything that puts that at risk, yeah. Maybe maybe not the best idea. Yep. Um, I'm going to go back to some of the areas of practice that you mentioned because the listeners here, many are developers or value add or opportunistic investors. Um, a lot of the work that we do is around joint venture equity. It sounds like that's you know right over the center of the the, the plate for you in terms of uh, core competence. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to kind of lead into it. I have a lot of experience with raising JV equity. My view of it is that securing debt financing is like getting somebody to go on a single date, maybe even a blind date. It's not that hard. Getting joint venture equity done is like making a marriage. And you've got personalities and very finicky buyers and a very slippery process that's fraught with pitfalls where things can fall apart. Um, kind of just want to give you the give you the mic if you will and and let you share whatever thoughts you have around trials and tribulations and pitfalls of jv equity it's it's a very esoteric and very difficult space and it sounds like you've made a strong niche there so i'm curious what you might want to share sure um yeah it is a fat pitch over the plate so so our firms you know to the extent we're famous it's it's in the joint venture space uh, nobody's counted, but I would suspect our firm has handled several thousand uh, joint ventures. I mean, if you figure, I don't know, several hundred a year for 25 years, it, it gets it gets into the thousands. Um, it is a very, very interesting area because it's tricky. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's I liken it to playing chess in the future. And, you know, what, what happens is, you know, one one party, either the business person or the lawyer, you know, it's done like two or three ventures. The other party's done like 200. The person with the expertise will take the other one to the cleaners. The other one won't even know it until, God forbid, something goes wrong. And everybody rushes to the documents. And that's when one guy says, pardon my French again, but says, oh, my God, I'm, I'm totally fucked. And the other guy says, oh, thank God, everything's in order. Um, and, and, and 
you know, without sounding however we sound, you know, our clients are always the latter because this is this is our bread and butter. The thing that's interesting about the joint ventures, there's the legal and the business, they blend together. And it really is a bit like a game of assuming things will go wrong in a certain, you know, all different ways, making sure that if they do, you're not victimized. You're not in a, in a, in a position where, you know, where you're being held up by your counterparty, et cetera. Um, so it's a space my whole firm has built o- over time. I started it, you know, Terry Adler, as I mentioned, now runs it. And I have, I think it's like seven partners that really, really, this is the heart of their practice. Uh, and it's an enormous competitive advantage for a firm because I'm not saying there's no other firms that, that can do this, but we really are the, the best of the best uh, in that that space. Now, the other thing that I'll, I'll say about the space, and this is something else that we've done that, that's very powerful. And actually, I think of the things your listeners might find the most useful is, is this. Over time, we developed a, a, a special value add to our business model, which is six words. And it's this, help our clients grow their business. And, and this was something that, you know, we started to learn over time that, you know, whether we liked it or not, you know, clients often commoditize lawyers and they say, you know, lawyers are lawyers, they're all the same. They don't really think that, but you know, there's, there's a lot of that at, at heart. And what we, we realized most of our clients, not all, but most of them really want is to figure out how to grow their business successfully. And when we started thinking that way, it was kind of like, you know, an epiphany. Uh, and it became really the heart of, of what we do with our clients. This is the area I personally spearhead. There, there's two parts to it, okay? The, the simpler part is just basically creating, uh, you know, uh, um, connections between our, our clients and other clients. Uh, the simplest one is, say, one client has a pile of money uh, and the other client has a deal of some sort, usually a joint venture, and is looking for uh, JV equity to put that deal together. Um, so we just started realizing that and we, we started introducing people. The more we did, the more people called, the more it really kind of took off like a like a flywheel, if you will. And I, th- I don't know, I've, nobody's counted up exactly, but somewhere between three and $4 billion of deals have come out of, out of just these introductions of people that need capital. Uh, and these range from uh, sometimes investments in platforms, you know, actually investments into the sponsor or they've been investments as preferred equity kind of debt, or they've just been plain old common equity in a simple, you know, straightforward uh, joint venture space. So half of it has been around um, the idea of just introducing, say, JV equity to a party that needs it. And then the other half of the building business is, is kind of like a business is at one level uh, and, and trying to figure out how to help it get to the next level. And often there's a capital constraint that's that's needed, either, you know, a different kind of financing or a different kind of, you know, way to get capital, which could be a JV, it could be a fund, it could be uh, even crowdfunding, which is percolating at a, at a really high pace nowadays. And so the thing that we came up with on that side is what I, I call the smorgasbord. And it was basically a, a smorgasbord, so to speak, of different ideas that are not mainstream to get capital to real estate players, whether they're little baby players that just you know have a gleam in their eyes sitting in the garage with no money, but they, they have a dream of something amazing, or they're major, major players trying to get bigger. Um, so all of this swirls around the joint venture space because the spice uh, more and more for our clients and for us 
is is the recognition that you know you bring one thing to the table like let's say you're you know a visionary brilliant developer you can see things that others can't see um but maybe you don't have a big pile of cash just sitting there and you have to figure out well what is the best way for you to get money you know are you going to raise your own fund are you going to just find like a rich party that gives you money are you going to go to an opportunity fund or a core fund or a core plus fund or value add fund? Are you looking to a family office, high net worth? Are you going to do a crowd fund? Are you going to get you know, higher leverage? But there's all different ways that, that you're going to try to figure out uh, how to succeed. And most of the time, you know, unless you're maybe, you know, Carlos Slim with a, you know, five with a hundred billion dollars just can buy something, you know, you're going to need teammates and the teammates one way or another are joint ventures. Uh, so it has been the heart of our practice. It sounds, um, uh, Kevin, like you've done a lot of this too. Uh, and you're right. It is a marriage because at the end of the day, uh, these two parties, uh, you know, they, they negotiate their document very carefully, but they, they are trusting that they're going to be good to each other when something unforeseen happens, which does. And, uh, you know, not, not everything uh, always works out the way uh, people want. Yeah, that's perfect. I had, a, I mean, you just put up like 15 things that we can drill down into, but point of clarification, is it typically the case that your law firm is representing the funds and the, the folks that may have done 200 JVs, or are you also rep, representing, or maybe it's a proportionality question, that upstart developer who's who's got the site tied up, he's got a great vision for the product, he's found the, the right general contracting team, and he just doesn't have the capital to execute. Well, we, we started out mostly on the side of the money. Yeah. Uh, and then over time, it, it ended up that now it's on all different sides. I'd say it's still maybe 65, 75% on the side of the money and 20, 25% on the side of the, the sponsor. We realized that since we've done so much on the money side, that we, we were really by far the best choice for a developer or sponsor. Absolutely. We know, we know what every single party has ever given anywhere and, you know, what's market, what's not market, but you can get anyway, you know, every little trick and angle, how to get basically, you know, money from, you know, the parties that give you money. Uh, and that's, that's a very, very valuable commodity. So, so more and more, you know, it's getting more and more, it's not 50-50 yet, but my guess is over time, you know, it'll end up, half the time we're representing the sponsor and half the time the money. And, uh, you know, we, we completely go both ways. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a game. It's like chess in the future. Yeah. I think that's a perfect analogy. Do you guys play in the space of credit enhancement at all? Because a lot of times what you'll see, well, let's just zoom out this industry. One of my complaints, observations, however we want to sort of frame this is that, there's an undue, I think, an over-focus uh, on what's the net worth and liquidity of the developer sponsor, this in particular for development or any kind of value-add or opportunistic deal. And what's their ability to bring a creative debt financing to the benefit of the LP equity, as opposed to, you know, we work and a guy who's a great sales person, a great promoter, great visionary. I'm not sure if there was ever a single dollar put in. And, and that's true in hundreds, if not thousands of other tech enterprises where it's the team, it's the vision, and there's no capital and there's no liquidity and net worth sort of focus. Um, so I wonder how 
you guys view that? And then are you ever in the space of, of doing, you know, credit enhancement to kind of help some of those undercapitalized uh, borrowers get through that part of the business? Um, it, it, you obviously have done a lot in the JV space because you put your finger on one of the, the trickiest issues um, and, and it, it, you know, it's bedeviling. So you're, you're a sponsor, you're trying to do deals, you've got a great development, you've got a great project, you got all the pieces, um, you know, you need, you know, it's a hundred million dollar deal, you want to borrow, you know, 60 million, you're going to get, you know, 40 million of equity, you scrape together the 4 million somehow and somebody else is going to give you 36 million on a 90-10 safe joint venture. It's all beautiful. Okay. But now the lender says, well, you know, you're building this thing. I need a completion guarantee. I need a bad acts guarantee. I need, a, you, know, a, a, you know, all different kinds of, uh, of guarantees. And, you, and the poor developer's like, well, yeah, I'll give you that. And, and the lender's like, oh, well, wait a minute. You need to have a $50 million net worth or this is going to work. The guy's like, I, I just started out. I don't have $50 million. What am I going to do? So, yes, that is a problem that percolates all over the place. Now, um, if you think about it, it's another game, if you will. You know, recourse is a hot potato. Uh, as lawyers, I always advise my clients by far the number one issue. If you're the lender, insist on it. If you're the borrower, do everything you can to get out of it, okay? So, you know, it is it is the most critical issue. Now, if the developer just doesn't have the credit support and the lender, you know, is just not moving, well, think about it. There's only really two outcomes. One of them is the deal's dead, and the other one is the LP has to step in there. Okay, so the LP is going to say, okay, I will put up the uh, guarantee. So what does that mean? Well, the LP is saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to be taking it out of your hide, uh, Mr. Sponsor. How can they take it out of their hide? Well, sometimes the, uh, you know, the LP will say they, they, they want better economic terms because they're saying to the to the sponsor, look, without our credit, this deal doesn't go anywhere. You have this promote. Your promote should be worse now because we're the ones that are basically putting our credit on the line for your promote. Okay. In addition, the LP might say something like, well, wait a minute. If I'm putting this guarantee there, <laughs> I need to have control of the joint venture. The last thing I can have is I'm the schmuck. Sorry if that's a swear word too. I'm the schmuck on the hook to the lender and you're running the show. Sorry, Charlie, that is not going to happen. So those are the kinds of things that go on. And of course, the, the, the sponsor's not just going to roll over on those issues. It's, it's like, well, wait a minute. You think you're so cool, Mr. LP, but you know, without me, this deal wouldn't have happened. I figured the whole thing out. I put it all together, created all this upside. And you know what? There's a lot of other LPs out there that are not going to beat me up so much. Anyway, the games begin uh, and there's three parties playing, the sponsor, the investor, and the lender. And as you rightly put your finger on, this is a, a real issue um, for the developer that does not have a huge net worth to stand behind the, uh, the these guarantees. Yeah, um, you've definitely spent a lot of time here. So somewhat tangential, because you've written about this as well. Um, what is happening, I think, at the fund level, and in, in particular, the mega funds, which seems to be kind of there are fewer and fewer players that are larger and larger is that career risk. And this is in my words, but something you, I know have written about um, is driving decisions into a sort of predictable and, and uniform direction. And, and everybody's buying IBM, which is to say industrial build to rents, multifamily. Uh, everybody's using the conventional structures because 
the downside for this professional money manager who hasn't invested any capital here, but has an incentive compensation structure is they lose their job. The upside is, well, you did what you were supposed to do. Uh, and, and to me, when you, when you see this sort of homogenization and, and rarification of you know, there are fewer investors doing larger deals that look more and more similar over time, it becomes very difficult to get the kinds of things we're talking about done, whether it's a smaller deal with an emerging manager who's lacking on the balance sheet net worth and liquidity, or it's a little bit uh, edgy in terms of the location, or maybe it's even a tertiary market where you actually have enough data to prove that, hey, it makes sense to build something in Spokane, because I'm just making this up, because there hasn't been a multifamily apartment built for 30 years. Uh, let's do it. But all of those things, as they deviate from the middle of the, the fairway, become a lot harder to get done. I, I just wonder... What do you see in that space? What do you think of it? Do you, I mean, you've, we're talking about being somewhat counter cyclical. Like to me, this is really obvious. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I think the, the stat is 50% of the buildings in the country are 50,000 feet and less. Well, that means 85% of the funds out there aren't ever going to touch them because they're too small and they can't write a big enough check. Uh, okay. I'm not totally sure what you're, yeah, I'm not sure there's a question there. I just am but seeing. I, I do. I do. Well, you know, look, one of the maybe this is the interesting part of, of what you're talking about. Um, and I, I don't take credit for this. The guy named ha uh, Howard Marks of, I think it's Oak Tree. Yeah. Really, really brilliant guy. He's written some very interesting books. But I think where you're heading on this is that what he says is, uh, you know, the first thing that any player in the real estate business or maybe any, you know, business business should decide is do you wish to outperform. And um, if you think about it, you know, everyone might, oh, of course, I wish to outperform. Well, wait a minute. When you think about what does outperform mean, it means outperform the average. Okay. And how do you outperform the average? Well, the, the thing you have to do to outperform the average, is you have to be different from the average, right? Because the whole point of the average, it's like buying an index fund in the stock market. You're saying, look, I don't want to underperform and I'll take away the risk of out or the upside of outperforming because I just want to be average and not take any real risk of deviating for, from that. But once you said, I wish to outperform, you now take the risk that you might underperform because you're different and there's only two mathematical outcomes, outperformance or underperformance. So then you sort of, Howard leads you through the thinking, well, once you've decided to do that, what are the implications? Well, as you were just saying a minute ago, if you outperform, you'll probably get a bigger bonus, you know, you know, hug from your husband or your wife and feel pretty good about it. But what happens if you underperform? Your business folds, you're out of a job. I mean, could be horrible. And if you start thinking about the risk and the reward, you know, the bonus and the hug is not as much good as losing your job is on the bad side. So you might say, not only yourself personally, but the company that you work for might say, we don't wish to take the risk of outperforming. We want to be 100% sure we're average because everything will be fine. And if you have a wealth manager, that's what he or she is saying to you right now. Okay, they don't want you to get pissed because they underperform because then you'll take away their money. Instead, they want to convince you that average performance is where it should be. So now in real estate, I think it's heading that way. And the reason I think it's heading that way is uh, I think it's now three years ago, maybe four, 
real estate mm. became a separate asset class, whatever that yeah. even means. It used yep. to be 2015. Real- it was 2015. Okay. I remember it. Yeah. Okay. Used to be stocks and bonds and alternatives, which is like gold and stuff. And real estate was part of alternatives. And that meant your wealth manager says to you, well, Charlie, um, you know, you should have 40% in bonds and 50% in stocks and 10% in alternatives. And he would look at you knowingly and you'd say, sounds good to me. And then he would tell you, well, the alternatives are a basket. Usually that's the word, a basket of blah, 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 of which 6% of the 10% is in real estate. And you're like, I don't know what the hell that is, but all right, fine, buy some real estate, which was probably a public REIT or, or something like that. Now, when it became a separate asset class, your wealth manager says to you now, it's like, well, Charlie, uh, you know, 40% stocks, 40% bonds, 10% in alternatives in a basket, and 10% in real estate. And you're like, oh, real estate, huh? Well, what, what, what does that actually mean? Well, then, then you start thinking, well, what does somebody that really doesn't know about real estate, like where are they going to put their money? Well, they're probably going to put their money in something that throws off a steady cash flow so that it's just fine, right? They're not going to be buying a development project with risks and rewards. They're going to buy Blackstone's B REIT uh, that's going to throw off six or 7%, super safe, and there's nothing wrong with it. Or they're going to buy, you know, Vornado, a publicly traded REIT. They're going to buy something like that for diversification purposes. So where I see the real estate industry heading is sort of not so different from the stock market. Over the next, I don't know, two, three, five, 10, 20 years, you're going to see a lot of what you might call index funds-ish kinds of things in the real estate space. And you're already seeing more and more of that. And then there'll be the parties like the developers, the visionaries, the thinkers, the creators. What they will be doing is you know, buying those little buildings that you just mentioned, maybe buying five or 10 or 20 of them, packaging them up, and then selling them once they're all done into these diversification purchasers. So the advice to the people say listening here is one thing you don't want to be doing is fighting with the diversification players because they're going to have a different risk reward profile for their money. They're going to want average performance. They'll take lower returns. You will not be able to uh, get cheaper capital, say then. So you don't want to be fighting for, with them for deals because you're going to lose. They'll pay more than you will. But instead, what you should be doing is figuring out how to either manage that money, raise money from these diversification purchases, put it together, get good fees, or sell to those diversification purchasers because they will be the ones paying the top dollar on the development that you created and crafted. And it's a little long-winded, but I think that's sort of targeted towards where I think you were heading with your question. No, it's exactly where I was going. And and you've also written about finding deals versus creating deals, right? And I think the point you're you're sort of well, it comes into focus here as well. If you're out on CoStar or LoopNet or your local MLS system and you go, Oh, look, a hotel, let's see what we what we can get it for. Well, it's gonna price to perfection. You're not gonna find anything even remotely near uh above average returns. And and you might argue that because it's so widely distributed, you're going to find below average returns. You know, this ties into some of what you've written, I think, in, in finding ways to create deals. Maybe, for example, this I've never thought of this until right now, it's laundromats. Maybe you're going to go buy and aggregate 600 laundromats because you know Blackstone would be happy to have that diversification in their REIT at a four and a half cap because that's what they're selling into the public markets for that guy who's doing, you know, 60% bonds, 30% uh, 
for 20% uh, stocks and 10% real estate and 10% other, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think. It, yep. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit and I really appreciate the mission of uh, Duval and Stackenfeld to help our clients grow their business. I know you have some affinity. Um, well, first of all, you've written a, bit, a book about power niches and creating monopoly power in kind of a tight vertical. It appears you might also be a Jim Collins fan who, who has, you know, gone into great length to explain, uh, the hedgehog. I'm wondering if your mission is tied into a vision and a core values and, and how Jim Collins also might inform the, the thinking and leadership <laughs> from the early days of we're completely effed to, you know, now we've got a mission. Does that also go with vision and core values? Do you guys know your hedgehog? How does all that tie in? Cause my <laughs> sense from kind of picking at the edges is that you're pretty steeped in all of that. Uh, it's funny. You bring back memories. So, um, as I said, at the beginning, we were, you know, roaming the plains, you know, frantically trying to survive, uh, through the misery that I don't know why I actually did it before the firm started, I'd written down a statement of values for a law firm and it was very emotional and, you know, lovey dovey, touchy feely, if you will. I actually wrote it before the firm even started. Uh, you know, lawyers are entitled to respect, do the right thing, even when it hurts, you know, things like that. And I'd written these things down. And when we started the firm, you know, maybe after my first firm meeting, uh, you know, I had said, you know, we, we really should look at these values and talk about them and adopt them for our own or, or change them. And everybody should have input, yada, yada, yada. And it was like, oh, it sounds like a great idea. And then we all got busy. And so the values got thrown in a drawer. Uh, fast forward about three or four more years. I think it was like 2000. It was probably, nine, I don't even know what it was, like 2002 or three or four. Uh, I stumbled upon a book called Built to Last by Jim Collins. And it talked about, you know, what he calls visionary companies that outperform for long periods of time. And there's all sorts of stuff in there. But one of the things he says is that visionary companies have values. They have a, a statement of purpose that's different from, we'll just try to make money and see what happens. They have some reason to exist that's kind of cool. So I'm like, oh, my God, we have values. We must be a visionary company. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So um, it's pretty much exactly what happened. So, so I inflicted the book on the whole firm. This is when people would still do what I said. They, they won't listen to me anymore. But in the old days, if I said something, they would do it. So I forced everyone in the firm who was there and everyone who joined the firm to rebuild to last. And then, um, you know, we spent a lot of time. Uh, I can't remember the exact year, probably 2005-ish or something. We spent a zillion hours on our statement of values and purpose and, and everything else. And it's still on the website. And, and we really created our constitution for what the firm was going to be about. And this is the heart and soul of the firm. Uh, it's all touchy-feely, singing kumbaya, you know, drinking Kool-Aid, you know, pick your, your metaphor. But it was our reason to exist uh, through the financial crisis, through COVID, through everything else. You know, there was something special that people want to be at the firm. Why? I mean, everyone may have a different reason, but there's something that feels good about it. And that, fe that good feeling you know, is, is from the values. Somehow it resonates and it, it talks to people. Uh, you know, that's kind of part of it. And then the other thing was the hedgehog principle, which Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great. Uh, and the hedgehog principle, uh, you know, that he talks about is great companies, he say, figure out what is their hedgehog principle. He defines three characteristics uh, for a hedgehog principle. It has to be um, something that drives your economic engine, something you're passionate about, 
and something you can be the best in the world at. And I'm going to add a fourth, even though Jim Collins probably has his reason for not. But um, the fourth, I would say, is you don't um, decree it. You find it because it's already there. Like you, you already have something and you look inside and you say, wow, that's what it is. And it's been there all along. You discover it. Uh, and our hedgehog principle, we realized was, you know, maybe to our surprise that we seem to care about people. Uh, you know, somebody's cat is sick, you know, the whole firm's in mourning. Uh, you know, we, we look out for our clients, help them build their business. You know, we're the ones that if the client, literally their business folds, so they come to office with us till we can help them either start a new business or find a new job. You know, we, we care. Uh, and, and so we said, you know, is that a hedgehog principle? And we thought about it. Yeah, it is what drives the economic engine because it's what keeps the lawyers and the clients here. Are we passionate about it? You bet we are. We have hedgehog committees. All clients get hedgehogs. It's like all we talk about. Are we the best in the world at it? I don't know if we could say that, but it is what we are. And the, the hedgehog uh, principle, which is evidenced by a hedgehog, I can't show you because this is a oral uh, podcast rather than a video, but every client gets a little cute little hedgehog. If you look on the website, it's right there. And we say to them, you know, look, this is your hedgehog. And this is a, it's really a, a commitment that we're going to look out for you. Uh, obviously in good times, but even more in bad times. If things go wrong for you, we're going to be there uh, 100,000% of the way. And, you know, the, the clients, they laugh, they make fun of the stuffed animal and everything, but but they also know that it's very sincere and it's very special and very powerful. So, yes, I'm a Jim Collins fan. There's no question. I have all of his books autographed because one of my friends is friends with him. And, uh, you know, if you ever come to the office, you can, you can see the book, see the head count <laughs> and, and have some fun. How else do you guys practice um, those core values and kind of getting them into the the zeitgeist, if you will? Uh, it's one thing to put them on a website and say, oh, these are our core values. But it's another, um, well, I'm reflecting on Tony Shea, uh, Zappos, and I believe they have like 22, which seems exhausting. Um, but it's on the, the name sort of badges and, and key card access for all of his employees. And, you know, I think they had some sort of recurring events and quizzes and things where people just, you kind of had to know the core values. Um, how do you guys get them from this sort of, well, like you, you're self, self-titled the real estate philosopher, right? A lot of philosophy is never put into practice because it's fairly esoteric. How do you bring it to ground? How do you get it to be living in your team? It's a really good question. It's very, very, very hard. Uh, and if it's anything that, you know, I, I kind of think we, we, we could be better at, it is that. Um, you know, the values become more important with, you know, when things are going badly, people realize that, you know, look, this is what, you know, keeps the lifeboat afloat, if you will. But there's really no, um, there's no, uh, you know, simple, well, I guess there is a simple thing. For the values to, to flourish, the, the most senior people at the company have to be absolutely passionate about it. They have to live by them, not 99% of the time, but 100% of the time. I mean, or do the right thing even when it hurts. Do the wrong thing just once. It's game over. Uh, other people have to participate in that and have to be, um, uh, uh, you know, not just listening, but participating in it as well. You have to talk about it all the time. I, the Zappas, I think, or Zappos, I think I read about, you know, key cards, just things that make it clear, like it's everywhere here. This is what matters. Uh, management has to be behind it and 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 reward it or the opposite. 
uh, people that don't fit with the values have to leave the company. They just can't stay and, and mess it up for others. I mean, it's got to really be the whole ethos of the place and it has to be recognized that it's the most important thing. And the way I put it, without the values, we're 50 lawyers sharing office space till somebody gets a better offer. That's it. Mm. There's nothing else that really matters. Like, why are we together? Like you asked before, what do I own as a lawyer? Oh, I mean, all we really own is the desire of other people to stick around the firm, right? I mean, that's it. They have, or they go down the elevator and don't come back. So the values are absolutely critical, but um, it's it's a huge commitment of, of the management to live by them, talk about them, espouse them, pound away at them, and, you know, and even drive people nuts over them. And and then everybody starts to realize, like, wow, this is, we're we're serious about this. And they don't even realize it, but they're so proud of it themselves because they recognize that, you know, when the partners are meeting, it's not meeting how to screw people. It's how to do the right thing, even when it hurts, 100% of the time. Then they're proud to work there. Then they're thrilled. And then it, it kind of, you know, becomes this big growing love bomb. I don't know. I'm, I know I'm being a little, uh, you know. No, no, it's actually all on point. And I, I have a question. I don't want it to be too leading. Um, you, I think you said you have six or seven people who are uh, really excellent and committed to joint venture equity. And, you know, you're talking about having to a certain extent uh, kind of a heart centric legal practice. I'm curious how the personalities of the people who are in the JV arena uh, align or misalign with that. Are they tacticians or are they relational? How do they show up in, in that space. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to tease it out too much because I'm just curious what kind of people excel in putting together joint venture both, equity. It, both. It's really difficult. Uh, you, it has to be absolutely both. You have to yeah. be, you have to be, I'm not sure it's a question of brilliance, but you have to be able to play chess in the future and figure out like everything that could possibly go wrong and make sure you've covered it and protected your client. At the same time, you have to be a relationship guy or gal. Because, you know, if you're if you're basically a dick, okay, uh, and you're obnoxious, rude, condescending, or other unpleasant behaviors to the other side, that gets translated into the belief that, well, your client is probably the same way. I mean, they hired a dick. The client must be a dick. I'm trusting these guys to do business with, and I think I'm doing business with a dick. I don't like this. This is not a good feeling for me. So if you're not a relationship person, you blow it. Instead, yeah. it's kind of like if, you know, just just the, the way of saying no and the other side asks for something that you 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 can't give or your client can't give. I mean, the obnoxious way is to say, nope, next issue. I mean, which is humiliating the other side. And the and the relationship way to say is look, I understand why you want that. And you know what? When I'm on your side, I, I really push hard for it myself because I know how important it is to you. We can't quite give you that, but here's something that we could give you that I think could be helpful to you. So the second is makes the other person respected, feel really good and recognize that, you know, we're, we're trying to, to be harmonious together. And the first one is more like I'm going to stamp you out like an ant and treat you with contempt. And so it is both skill sets are critical. Uh, I'm proud to say that my partners who've made it through the training and everything else, they all have that in depth or our clients wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. It, it, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And that's exactly what I thought you would say. I was hoping you would just stumble into it, which I think you did. Uh, to me, that is the heart of placing joint venture equity. It, everybody can get through the chess, the technical part. 
Um, and in fact, this could be a segue into artificial intelligence, which I know you've also written about. Look, I've got uh, in our Salesforce database, every time we put a project against a capital source, it's a unique member of the database. We're just about approaching 10,000 mm -hmm. connections between, you know, capital X, Y, and Z on project Q and, and all the other projects we've worked on. So there's starting to be an abundance of data, probably nowhere near enough for sort of regression algorithms and things like that to begin to fill in the blanks. But what I see is that your response of, hey, I understand what you're asking for. And, and in fact, when I'm on your side, I ask for the same thing, but let me help you understand how that's going to land for my client. Those kinds of emotional intelligence, those kinds of personal interactions just seem like 100% front and center core value proposition to getting these kinds of things done. So branching off of that, artificial intelligence, what are your views of the things that might be out there that would put you out of a job, that would put me out of a job? I'm the marriage maker. You're the guy that actually has to make the documents work. Uh, artificial intelligence. That's a really good question. The irony, my daughter um, works at uh, Google in their DeepMind uh, division uh, in London, which is one of the top uh, AI uh, places on the planet. And we talk about artificial intelligence all the time. Now, from the lawyer's perspective, it's 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 probably good. We're, we'll probably be one of the last uh, areas to be supplanted by artificial intelligence because it's all about, you know, thinking, creating, and bobbing and weaving. It's, you know, you would hope that AI will have a ways to go before they replace us lawyers. On the real estate side, uh, it's it's interesting. There are players that are starting to try to figure out how to do it. Um, it's starting out um, with as much, I mean, machine learning or artificial intelligence, you know, it depends on algorithms and mul multiplying things that look similar to create, you know, predictions about things that will, will happen. Uh, I would guess, you know, companies like Zillow and things like that are probably the best examples of AI-based uh, business because there's like, you know, millions and millions of houses that keep plugging them in. And, you know, every single house, you know, I'm sure Zillow's wrong on, but it's probably close enough that people can start relying on it. So now you start thinking about the, you know, the commercial uh, space. Um, and I, I do have clients that are starting to do this. What they're doing is they're trying to buy very small pieces of property. Like you mentioned earlier, buildings that are smaller than say 50,000 feet, you know, they trade for what, 500,000 to 10 million, depending on where they're located or something like that. And they don't really fit the bill very easily for clients with money or developers or everything else because it's just too small and, and the transaction costs and everything else wipe out the upside. However, if you're using AI and you're saying, well, you know what, we're going to buy 500 little buildings that cost two, $2 million each, it's a billion dollars, and we're going to do virtually no diligence on any of them except maybe get an environmental report, make sure it's not on a Superfund site, and we're just going to buy it. Okay, and we know statistically that, you know, it's probably worth a billion two as an aggregate, but each each location we really can't tell. Those are the kinds of things where AI is going to be very, very valuable in, in terms of kind of assessing, you know, probabilities and, and looking at things. And I think you'll see a lot of that. I would suspect AI will have the least impact, you know, where you would think, which is like development. I don't know how AI helps a developer 
you know, maybe it helps in reducing costs or something. But I mean, the whole idea of figuring out like there's this building and you know, that can be built here if we tear down that building and there's a politician that hates it. And this guy likes it and yelling and shouting at that guy and begging and pleading here. And, you know, who the hell knows how you get that project going? <laughs> I don't think AI does much in that uh, in that area. Yeah, that's great. Um, so look, I'll leave. I know we've got a hard stop coming up, so I'm, I'm going to give you a, a swing. If you've got something you'd like to leave, you know, with a with a mission uh, of helping your clients build their businesses, you're obviously working with the entrepreneurial set on, on a fairly regular basis, whether they're bootstrapped or entrepreneurs within a much larger organization. Any message you want to send out there for the, the entrepreneurs listening in? Sure. Uh, I, have, I have two messages. First, buy my book. <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's a really good book. And I'm not just saying that. It's really got all my brain power in one place. Uh, and I think if it's especially if you're starting out or you've been around a, a long time, what I've tried to do is, is really think about things and challenge accepted assumptions and, and try to come to different conclusions that are useful. And um, I think um, you've been very smart here in, in teasing them out of me, but I do think it is a unique book. There's nothing else remotely like it in the real estate world. It's great for your son or daughter that's thinking of real estate. And it's great for you if you're the CEO of your business, just thinking about like what to do and, and whatnot. The other message is um, if you're a a sponsor out there and you're looking for uh, capital of any, pretty much any kind, um, call me. Uh, I have a, a very, very large number of clients with capital, all different kinds, little family offices, writing small checks of a few million, sovereign wealth funds, writing checks of several hundred million and everything in between. And, and uh, you know, w w there may be a, a really nice connection that could be made. That's great. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, if you want to reference the website, uh, any other place where folks might pick up the the upcoming book, The Real Estate Philosopher's Guide, anything like that, feel free um, to offer that up and, and then we can give it a wrap. Okay. Well, look, thanks so much for having me. I, I hope these, some of the things I said were useful to your listeners and uh, I'm honored uh, very sincerely uh, for being here and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. And thanks to all the listeners. And uh, I have to say this, if, if you like the podcast, get out there and give it a review. That seems to be the uh, catalyst that, that grows things. Uh, thanks again, Bruce. I appreciate your time. All right. Have a great afternoon.